I pray that you find as great a blessing in the reading, in the covenanting, the fellowship of that covenant that we have so uh, so diligently worked to make a part of our church life. Sometime back when we were making plans and looking at the calendar for the church, I asked the uh, I asked the other elders if they would allow me to have this time this morning to uh, to do some teaching and uh, instruction with regard to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. For there, there are there are as many different understandings, interpretations, beliefs with regard to the Lord's Supper pretty much as there are churches, as there are congregations. And it's my thinking that with this time this morning that perhaps I can help to establish in what is truly a young church. Don't you all feel young? Come on, Mary. <laughs> Amen. The, uh, and, and, to, uh, and to then uh, create or perhaps encourage some, some traditions of our own, uh, some understanding of the participation in the Lord's Supper that while may not be uniquely ours, that would certainly be ours to claim. From the first century, it seems, well, not it seems, in fact, from the first century, there have, there have been uh, misunderstandings, misinterpretations of the church's participation in the Lord's Supper. We'll talk more about that as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 here in a few minutes as the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, wrote to the Christians, the church at Corinth, to give them some corrective, right, some corrective on, on uh, participating in the Lord's Supper. And so it has continued throughout the ages, uh, perhaps in spite of the Apostle, in spite of Scripture, that uh, mankind has always imposed uh, his, uh, his ego, if you will, on, on the practice of the Lord's Supper. At the time of the Reformation, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point because I don't know a lot about this point. I, I know I had to pass a test in seminary, but after that, clear, right? But um, the, the, uh, the Reformers really um, spent a, a lot of writing, a lot of ink, in, in understanding the elements of the Lord's Supper. And of course, you've probably heard the term transubstantiation. Maybe, okay, transubstantiation has, has been out there. Um, and then there were others that had other kinds of substantiation. And those are the ones that I can't remember. Um, but they all had different ideas of, of what, what is the, the bread and the wine. We believe that the bread and wine are symbolic. That they represent 
a reality that is not themselves. There's nothing wrong with symbolism. We use symbolism all the time. Using the tangible, something you can hold in your hand, to communicate that which is intangible. So we use symbols to communicate ideas, concepts, emotions, and that which is spiritual. Cannot be held in your hand. We use symbols. Think about some of the symbols that you encounter frequently. I don't know why my mind turned to money, but it did. And uh, you, can, you can accuse me of that later on. But somebody this morning will probably put a check in the basket when it gets passed around. And we're very thankful for that check. Right? But we're not thankful for that piece of paper. Right? We're thankful for what that piece of paper symbolizes. Okay? So, symbolism is, is, not, is not to say that, that this is uh, somehow unreal or, or somehow any less real, but rather it's a, a good way, and it's certainly God's way, where God communicates to his people the intangible, the spiritual. And so we have the Lord's Supper, which is symbolic. And it is God's means. It is the Creator's symbols to accomplish His intent, to communicate His intent. But it is also that those who receive will receive His intent, will receive His purpose being able to set aside that ego of man that would interfere with receiving, understanding, accepting God's symbol of the spiritual, the reality of the spiritual. God's will is made known through these symbols. God's love. God loves you. It's one of the most fundamental Principles of all of Scripture. God loves you. And in that God loves you, He desires, He wants you to know Him. He wants to make Himself known. He wants him, you to know Him as He truly is. And so he, he reveals Himself. He has made Himself known in a number of ways and certainly through His Word through the prophets of old. And those, those preachings and those writings that came, God come to make himself known in the person of the incarnation of his Son. God incarnate. God in the flesh. God continues to make himself known through his word and through the presence of his Holy Spirit. God desires that you would know him, know him for who he 
truly is. He loves you. And he, and he loves you. He makes himself known. Now, I suspect that most everybody is familiar with the Exodus, the, uh, the children of Abraham, uh, children of Israel, had been uh, in Egypt. Eventually, they, they became slaves in Egypt, being forced to, to work for the Pharaoh and his, his projects. God sent his prophet Moses, and through Moses, he led the nation of Israel out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt. And on the night before the people were going to follow Moses out of Egypt, remember Pharaoh wouldn't, wouldn't let them go. Pharaoh wouldn't relent. Pharaoh would not uh, agree to let them leave the country. And the night before they were to leave, God told the, his people, he told them to take a, a lamb, a young lamb without a blemish, to slay that lamb and to paint the, the blood from that sacrificed lamb over their doorpost. And the, the, the death angel would come through Egypt that night and would slay the firstborn of every household except where the death angel saw that blood over the door. And there the death angel would pass over that house. And so it was that many, many boys, many of the firstborn of the Egyptians and other foreigners in that land died that night. But among the people of God, those who had been obedient and painted the blood of the Passover, the sacrificial lamb, the, the death angel passed over and their sons were saved. As God led his, his people out of bondage then, he told them later on, he said, I want you to remember what happened that night. I want you to, I'm going to establish for you a memorial. Right? We, don't, we don't use the word memorial a whole lot except to talk about a funeral maybe, right? But the idea of a memorial is, is the idea of remembering, of, of being brought to mind. And so God told Israel that he would establish for them a memorial that they would, uh, they would remember what God had done in that night in the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 14, we see this day, God says, is to be a memorial for you, and, and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statute. Now, in this festival, in this memorial, God had instructed them that as they did on that Passover night, they were to prepare unleavened bread. Now, the idea of the unleavened bread on the night of the Passover was you're leaving quick. You don't have time for the bread to raise, rise, get up. But furthermore, there is a symbol throughout Scripture, 
symbol of leaven or, or yeast that is a symbol for sin. And so it was that God had told them to remove all yeast, all leaven from their bread as they would remove all sin from their lives and from their households. So unleavened bread is symbolic of the absence of sin in God's people. Unleavened, sinless, holy. God instructed them through his prophets a manner of wine that they would consume during this memorial, this festival. The wine representative of the blood of the Passover lamb. The red wine would give a very real symbolism of that blood that had been shed by that lamb, that perfect lamb, that had led to the salvation, the salvation of the men of God. And so that blood that is life is symbolic of the Passover lamb that saved God's people. God commanded Israel to celebrate this memorial with these symbols, these elements, and he would have them to remember. I think memory is a much too often taken for granted gift of God. God has options, right? God, God can choose, and God chose to create, create us as a people who have memory. And he created us with a memory for a purpose. Now that memory we often use to our, our own benefit, Right, our own advantage. Some of us, it begins to, to wane a bit, and uh, we can't, uh, can't always find our car keys or our glasses, even when they're on our head. Uh, but it's a gift from God that we can remember Him and remember what He has done for our sakes and for his glory. God has given us the gift of being able to remember what has occurred in history, to remember the Passover, to remember the Exodus, when God saves his people from slavery, when God saves his own from the, from the death angel. The whole point of God giving Israel this memorial, this festival, the whole thing behind it, God says, is so that you will remember. Now, I hope you're tracking with me, because we're going to get there. But I want you to remember this point. For we come now, a thousand years or more later, the Son of God has come into the world. He's walked among men. He has disciples 
who have followed him. And it comes to this Passover night. And Jesus tells his disciples as they're walking down the road, Jesus tells his disciples, go into town and you will find a man. Tell him that the master desires to celebrate the Passover in his house and you'll find in his house an, an upper room, a large upper room. There prepare for us to celebrate the Passover. You know me, I like to focus in on the words that everybody else passes over. And I think the word prepare is so very important here. What a privilege it would have been to be that fella. I think to be that fella, to have that house where Jesus and his disciples were going to come and celebrate the Passover. Praise God, what a privilege to prepare for what God has done among his people. I think that privilege, I think that blessing flows down through the ages to us to prepare for the Lord's Supper. To grant to that privilege the, the distinction, the honor that it's due. But also to recognize that there's a sacrifice involved. Jesus had already told his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem for them to kill me. The talk all around town. Somebody bring us this Jesus of Nazareth. There's a reward offered for his capture and conviction. And so it was the man, the person who receives this fantastic honor, blessing from God, to prepare for Jesus to celebrate the Passover. It's a sacrifice. It's to be willing to be obedient regardless of what the consequences may be. And so it is that Jesus sits down. The apostle tells us that they would celebrate what would become a new memorial, what would become a new remembrance that this occurred on the night he was betrayed. Very significant that this is the setting, this is the, the, the uh, circumstance in which Jesus would now establish this memorial for his followers. The night that he was betrayed, the night that the promise of God the Messiah, the Savior, the anointed coming one from God is rejected. The Passover. 
not remembered. The salvation, intrinsic, denied, betrayed. In this most evil of time frames, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus reveals the grace of God that has been hidden throughout the ages. Jesus, as part of the ritual dinner, he takes out a loaf of bread. Now the, this bread, there were three loaves, and they were carried in a, a cloth um, satchel. And Jesus comes to this third loaf, and, and he takes half of it, and they, they eat the first half. And then he hides the second half. When Jesus, when it comes time to bring out this second half that was hidden, Jesus now reveals what had been hidden. hidden. And Jesus now reveals the Messiah. Jesus reveals that he is, in fact, the one that they should expect. They had, they had said to him repeatedly, Tell us plainly, are you the one? Jesus said, Even if I told you, you wouldn't believe. But on this night, Jesus takes out this bread, this hidden half of a loaf and that which is hidden is now revealed this is my body which is for you of the four cups of wine when Jesus comes to the third cup the cup that was called the cup of redemption Jesus says to his disciples this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now Jesus' disciples, the early church, they, they brought this supper with them into the church. But the church also celebrated what they called the agape feast. And for many, for many of the church members, this agape feast was, was a big deal. They didn't get to feast very often. It's kind of hard for us to really enjoy a feast, isn't it? Because we feast every day. Uh, but for them, typically their, their service was held on a Sunday night and they would uh, come together and have a big meal. Now they also, most often, the drink of choice was wine. And there would be plenty of wine at these agape feasts. 
at the church on Sunday night. And most often, then after the feast, after their, their food and, and wine, then they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, the church had no New Testament. The, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written later, after, just about all of Paul's letters. And so when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he was writing to the church in Corinth to give them some instructions because they had gone pretty far afield in some of their practices and, and some of the things that they were allowing in the church. It's pretty, pretty harsh stuff. Paul had a, a big job. Uh, all those churches that he had planted uh, in the central part of Turkey and then along the coast of Turkey and Crete, uh, along uh, uh, Greece and, and uh, that other place, North Africa, no, no, no North Africa. What's north of Greece? Macedonia. Thank you. I knew I'd think of it. So, so all the churches that he had uh, he had planted there, and he and he tried to he wanted to stay in touch with them because he was he was the apostle, right? They didn't have the New Testament. He had no email. Uh, no, yeah, can you believe it? No, um, no instant messaging. Uh, no, uh, no, uh, what do they call it? Facebook messaging? Uh, no, no internet. Uh, all he had was a, to write a letter and have it hand carried. So he, he was very, uh, very intense and very specific about, about what he wrote. And, and what, what was going on, what he had heard, what he knew they were practicing there as a part of the Lord's Supper, I think it upset him. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll read from verse 17. The Apostle Paul, as he's inspired by the Spirit of God, writes to the church in Corinth, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. And you know what's going to follow is not going to be good. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord that what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Again, don't be too hard on these first century Christians' church in Corinth. They had no other instructions. They had only what Paul had told them when he was there, only what their elders who had no further guidance could offer. All of 1 Corinthians, especially the, 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 the second half after Paul establishes the, the theology, the doctrine of the church, the rest of it is pretty much a strong rebuke of a worldly... This is John MacArthur. This is, this is authoritative here. He says, this is given in the middle of a strong rebuke of worldly, carnal, selfish, and insensitive attitudes and behavior. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup, the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Are you worthy? God forbid our forgive our arrogance. None of us will ever be worthy of the body and the blood of the Son of God. So don't uh, don't let that be an issue for you. No, you're not worthy. And you're not going to be worthy. Only by the presence of the grace of God and the imputed righteousness of his Son is their worthiness. But what's at issue here is being guilty of the unworthy manner of participating. You see that phrase in there? What verse was that? That was 11, 20, 30-something. 
Where was it? Don't make me turn back. 27. Think about that. It's an unworthy manner. If anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, 29, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is the unworthy manner that the apostle is telling the Christians that they need to give judgment of, to, to consider for themselves, are you discerning... Do you understand? Do you believe? Do you recognize, accept, acknowledge the body of Christ? Without discerning the body, we... We are such egotists, self-centered... And we come to church and we want church to be every bit about as much about me as everything else in my world. I want that capital I sitting up on the throne of life. Do what benefits me. I'm not going to that church anymore. You know why? I didn't get nothing out of it. Okay. I'm not sure I want to broadcast that around. And so this sin here, this, this unworthy manner, is all about setting aside the ego, the me, the myself, my, my concerns, my cares, and humbly, you hear this? Humbly submitting in the body. Now it's only about 30 verses later on. See this, whoever that guy was back in the 12th century that put these chapters and verses in here kind of throws us off sometimes. And then we get our study Bible out and it has all those uh, you know, comments and everything in the place. But it's just a few verses later in 1227. Listen to this. You know what Paul says to the church? 1227. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You think Paul has changed subjects here? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think he very intentionally is bringing before them Jesus at the table, bringing out the bread, saying, this is my body, that hidden loaf, This is my body, which is for you. Now, you are the body of Christ. And you will take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner if you do not discern that you are the body of Christ. What are some of the other terms that we use? The church, right? Congregation, the fellowship, the covenant. Now you are the body of Christ. 
And those who receive the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner are those who are not discerning of the church. We have, we have as a people, and we have been taught, probably, certainly I have. I won't put it on you, but since I was a little Baptist about that big, I have had such people teaching, set an example before me of such a low opinion of the church. Typically voiced in terms of that sorry preacher down there whom we probably need to get rid of. The deacons who have committed every sin under heaven. Um, Sunday school teachers that run off with other Sunday school teachers. The preacher preaches too long. I can't sing the songs. They won't let me in the choir. And they want. Every Sunday I go down there. More money. That church can spend money like Daddy Warbucks. But you know, Jesus did not have such a low opinion of his church. You know how I know that? Did you hear, Mary? He died for his church. He loves his church. Jesus has a, a very high opinion of his church. Jesus has a very high opinion of the the body of Christ apparent in the world today, who is, who is the symbol, who is representative, who, who by our behavior, by our actions, by our beliefs, by, by how we are the church, we represent him before the world. You must have this opinion, sharing this opinion, this love for the body of Christ if you would discern the body of Christ and not in an unworthy manner participate in the Lord's Supper. And here you thought it was just drinking and smoking and running around with wild women. It's much worse than that. I rejoice. My, my, my heart is just, just overflowing with the joys of the blessings of being a part of this covenant. As John read the covenant this morning, and we say amen. We are the body of Christ. We are the church. And we believe what God has made known of himself through his word, through the coming of his son, and through the presence of his Holy Spirit. It is unity. It is the oneness for which Jesus prayed. You remember that, don't you? John chapter 17, Jesus specifically asked the Father for unity in this church. Jesus prayed for us that night. Let us share in the heart of Jesus Christ our Savior. 
Not this egocentric of, of who we are, of what we need, of, about us. Let's not have to interpret everything through this egocentric perspective, but rather that in this supper, in this time, in this church, it is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, His church. It is of others we should be discerning. We are the body of Christ. Let us let our consideration of the church rise to the level of Christ who loves her and gave himself up for her. God told the nation of Israel to celebrate that festival, that memorial. Why? To remember. And Jesus very pointedly establishes this supper for the same reason. God's purpose is to remember. To remember Jesus. Not just to remember a name, not just to remember some Bible verses, not just to remember some dates and places, but remember Jesus. Remember the man, who he was, what he said, how he lived. Remember Jesus in the body and the blood of Christ. Remember him as the humble man. Remember him who, who is, is the one who, who did not cling to his place on the throne of heaven, but very obediently left that place in heaven and took upon himself the form of a man. Remember Jesus, obedient. Remember Jesus, whose only commandment was that you love one another. Remember Jesus, who was willing to sacrifice all for your salvation. Praise God, we have the Bible. Praise God, we have the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, and we can learn from it. And throughout the ages, lo, these 2,000 years, churches have been practicing, participating in the Lord's Supper. As we encounter it, as we are familiar with it, some of the issues that might be asked, questioned, who should celebrate? Who are the celebrants? Well, there's no biblical guidance on this. And so no one can say, you can't. He can, she can, but you can't. Not, not based on the Bible. Now, there are, there are some other books, some other books that uh, have authority in other congregations that, that very specifically say who can uh, be the celebrant at the Lord's Supper, but not sovereign grace. There is no biblical standard. But it is appropriate, I believe, that the ordained elders of the church, the ordained leaders of the church, should do what? Should lead. Does that make sense? 
Is that consistent? Okay. And so it is that in our practice, it is the elders of the church who will be the ones who will serve at the Lord's table. Not based upon a biblical standard, but upon the reasonableness that leaders should lead. Who should participate? Who should receive the Lord's Supper? Lot of discussion on this one. I mean, this is as varied as anything about the practices, the doctrines, the standards of the Lord's Supper. But the Bible says, let those who are discerning of the body of Christ. And what does that mean? Church. How often should we observe the Lord's Supper? Jesus said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. Jesus left it up to us. Sovereign grace, we practice the Lord's Supper once a month. Some once a quarter, some once a year. Some every week. Nothing wrong with any of those practices according to the practice of the doctrine, the leadership of that congregation. The Lord's Supper table, we are not celebrating the Passover. Okay? There's, again, there's some, some kind of questions, some issues, some practices where churches want to celebrate the Passover. Well, we don't celebrate the Passover. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so all the elements of the Passover are not appropriate. Rather, we have a table that is set before us with the unleavened bread and the cup. How about the service? How is the Lord's Supper to be served? Well, again, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us that we should wait for one another. It is to be understood that at the Lord's table, we wait for one another. We serve one another. No one, and if you read that whole text, right? Did you hear that? How, how one guy was sitting there and gnawing on a turkey leg, and, and somebody else is over there and don't have anything but a couple of saltine crackers. One guy's got his whole... Uh, flagon of uh, Napa Valley's Cabernet Sauvignon. He's just chugging it back. And another guy over here has got some uh, watered-down Ben Rosé. Yeah, everybody's kind of doing their own thing, right? First of all, that ain't church, right? And, And so... So we, we understand, as the Apostle tells us, as the Scripture tells us, wait on one another. I want to bring one other concept, one other doctrine into play here. For in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, you want to look that up? Sure. But you 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. I read an article here not long ago that really just caught my attention on this verse. It said that the misunderstanding here is the idea that because I'm a priest, I get to do my own thing. I get to make my own decisions. I get to, to come up with my own doctrines because I'm a priest. The writer of this article says, no, no, not the case. You're a priest that you might serve others. Look at the, look at the background, the history of the priesthood. It's the ministry of service. It's a ministry of ministering to others. And so God calls us to a royal priesthood that we can serve others. And so it is at the table of the Lord. We wait on one another. And as priests of our Lord Jesus Christ, we serve one another. The elements of the table... The bread, the wine. Jesus was speaking to a multitude earlier on in his ministry. And Jesus said, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for you the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. I was reading excerpts from John chapter 6. Who the best Bible students among you know that that's the occasion when the multitude left Jesus and didn't follow him anymore. Don't, don't be too casual about eating the body of Christ. Don't be too casual about drinking his blood. You say, well, it's just grape juice. Well, that ain't what Jesus said. And if you think drinking blood, that's gross. Exactly. But in blood is the life. And Jesus is saying, receive the sacrifice of my body. Drink from the life that I give through my death. Part of the reason I got fired from a previous church was uh, because I told them that John chapter 2, when Jesus 
was at the wedding and he turned the water into wine was that the wine was symbolic of the joy. This was the, the Bible tells us this, this was Jesus' first miracle that he, he accomplished at the wedding feast in Cana. And, and uh, so this first miracle was, was all about Jesus bringing joy. Right? The wine is symbolic there of joy that he was bringing to the nation of Israel. And so there's some measure of joy in drinking the wine, the blood of our Savior. For in him is life, in his blood is life. And never, while it's certainly you don't want to be casual about the body and blood of Christ, you also want to, to understand that, that this is a, a memorial, that this is the remembering, and that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he passed it to them. The bread that was hidden. The bread that was a, a mystery. The bread that was the, the body of Christ. The church that was hidden throughout the ages. Did you listen when we were studying through Ephesians? Remember the church that was the mystery? that had been hidden and that was now that was now what? The manifest glory of God. No longer hidden. No longer hidden, but now revealed to make known into the world. Now this is the body of Christ. The body of our Savior. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. As often as you do this, this do in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup, the cup of redemption. He said, this is the blood, the Lamb of God. As John said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world the blood sacrifice which consecrates a new covenant, the promise of God for the forgiveness of sin and the gift of life according to the riches of his grace. Jesus said, this is the cup of a new covenant in my blood. All of you drink from it. For often as you eat this drink, eat this bread, drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us be sure that the elect of God, those who have been granted by the grace of God this faith, this belief in Jesus Christ, and have received the merit of his righteousness, that this is not something that is optional. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Would we hold back? 
Would we leave it to the rocks to cry out for His glory? Or do we share in the zeal of Paul who wrote, Woe to me if I do not proclaim the gospel. Our participation in this divinely inspired drama is good news. Good news that is proclaimed. It is not you or I that are in the leading role, right? It is the Savior who died for us, our Savior who is coming again to judge the living and the dead and to reward His church, to reward His church to sit down with Him at a new supper. As John revealed, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We do show forth the Lord's death until He comes. With the psalmist, we proclaim hallelujah, glory to God. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me, because, because therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Praise the Lord, all the nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen.